Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's December 15th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew Halsbarby and I'm here as always with Austin Knight. How you doing, Austin? Oh man, Matt, I am just elated. I feel like some, some beginnings of justice are starting to be served. But at the same time, I'm terrified about what everybody's saying about Binance. Are we going to crash the entire crypto industry? <laughs> it's, yeah, this is like the the amuse-bouche of the, the, the meal of justice, I think, that we're starting to see with uh, SBF going in for um, some early treatment, which we're going to kind of talk a bit about. But I am a... I, I'm quietly concerned about the Binance rumors, but yeah. then it's very difficult to know like what's just a rumor, what's not. I think we pay mm-hmm. a lot of attention, probably rightly so, to rumors at this stage, but we shall see. But I think the all, all that to one side, I think the saddest news that we have right now is that this is going to be our last episode of 2022. Uh, we're oh going to actually gosh. unbelievably take some much needed rest uh and the good news is though we will be back in the first week of jan uh with with more episodes i'm sure that nothing will happen in the period of time between when we, <laughs> st- we stop recording after today and we kick things back in january so the real challenge is gonna be what the hell are we going to talk about but uh yeah with that let's jump into our first story of the day SBF has been arrested in the Bahamas. Finally! Oh, <laughs> hallelujah! <laughs> yeah. Hey, better late than never, right? And uh, yeah. we have seen some comparisons to how it took a little bit uh, of time to arrest our favorite Theranos uh, CEO and and everything mm-hmm. like that, Elizabeth Holmes. So, hey, justice does have a process. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can or should let go of quite all of your cynicism yet, but this is a good sign. So what happened is the Bahamas police arrested SBF on Monday at the request of U.S. authorities. They actually received a formal notice from the U.S. that uh, they had officially filed criminal charges against SBF in U.S. court of law and that they would be likely to request extradition to the U.S., which, as we've discussed, the Bahamas does have somewhat favorable extradition laws and processes and agreements with the U.S., and that's Mm. why there is so much speculation around SBF, you know, potentially trying to get to the UAE and, uh, you know, speculation around Caroline being in Hong Kong and then finding it odd that she was spotted at a coffee shop in Manhattan with her dog. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh man did she honestly like the that's the the bizarreness of like this case which i think there is more bizarreness to come is uh, you know like the classic someone goes on the run and they get like plastic surgery to completely change their Mm -hmm. like thing i i would not write off that some one of the many characters in this bizarre story goes down that kind of line it's uh yeah i mean the i mean the headlines at the moment right is this is one of the, if not the largest financial fraud case in US history. It's, that's the scale we're talking about. Like, you know, we've talked about this a lot together on the podcast as like a crypto thing. You know, this is not 
a big deal just in terms of crypto. This is big deal in terms of like some of the biggest crimes in history. Yes. That is pretty significant when you when you frame it in that manner. Oh yeah, Matt. I mean, for the longest time we've been wanting to crypto to go mainstream and we got it, baby. We just oh, didn't yeah. expect it was going to be a court case. <laughs> Maybe SBF this was his long this was the long game. Uh, you know. He struggled with his what was that <laughs> meme round that he raised where it was like however many million and 69 cents because that's the level of maturity that we have in the uh the the crypto industry that that is a source <laughs> of hilarity. And then he's like, "You know, they're not going to pay attention to my oral sex jokes in my financing. Here's one for you. I'll do the world's largest known financial fraud. Maybe that'll bring <laughs> crypto to the masses. And I, you know what? I can't fault him. He has brought it to the masses all right. That is for sure. <laughs> so what is he looking at? We've got eight <laughs> criminal charges that have been filed by the Complex Frauds and the Cybercrime Unit at the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney's Office. Sounds and, scary. Uh, oh, oh my gosh. What The longer the name, the scarier it is. Oh, my yeah. Goodness. Um, okay, so these are eight separate charges, but if I were to give you kind of the TLDR of what they wrap up into, it's basically wire fraud on customers and lenders, and these are broken out in terms of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and then literally committing the wire fraud, uh, committee commodities fraud, securities fraud, ooh, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, money laundering, one. yeah, that is a bad one. Um, yeah, money laundering. And then also this last one, which I thought was interesting, was defrauding the U.S. government and violating U.S. campaign finance laws. So mm. this seems to specifically have to do with all of those donations to political campaigns that people have been talking about. So would I be right in thinking this is bad news for Sam Bankman-Fried? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. You know, it turns out, Matt, if SBF's goal was to break the records for the longest prison term to be served for a white collar crime, he might be performing pretty well because he's going to be looking up to potentially 130 years in prison. That's a long time. So you're Ooh. looking at life in prison there. Uh, and th the crazy thing about this is that like you hear these big numbers sort of, you know, quoted and placed in headlines for really high profile cases all the time. And then inevitably, like there's some type of a plea deal or, you know, that that number becomes like a fourth of what was originally discussed and everything like that. I wouldn't take that off the table here, but some of these individual crimes alone have penalties that start at 20 years in prison plus really, really hefty fines. And because this involves so much money and so many people that are impacted, it is likely that the sentencing range and the guidance is going to be extremely high. So if justice is served correctly, which of course there are no guarantees there, mm -hmm. um, the speculation does seem to be that he's probably going to be facing life in prison. It's pretty intense. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's... I, I actually, you know, I think both of us for the longest time so far have kind of held the view that SBF was probably going to get away with this. I, I think yeah. this move now has has actually shifted my opinion. Um, yeah. I think that his active pursuit of fame in particular, you know, this was a deliberate mm -hmm. kind of PR play from him getting in 
tons of interviews. And I'm not talking about post the collapse of FTX. I'm talking about prior, right? You know, he was trying to become a, a household name. He had this effective altruism piece, political donor. He, he was famous. He was, many were saying that Sam Bankman Freed was going to be the first ever trillionaire. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, put, put that into perspective. This is a well-known individual and now he's become infamous. And you can't brush that under under the carpet, right? You know, that is a very, very well-known person. This is going to be tracked very carefully, not just by those in crypto, but by the, the wider public. And I think that actually this is going to come back to haunt him even more so than if it wasn't kind of the case that he was famous, where he would almost certainly yeah. still be facing serious prison time. He needs to be made an example, I, I imagine, uh, at this point. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. I think I I'm still kind of you know <clears throat> crossing my fingers that uh, <laughs> justice actually is served here, and we don't get like some type of a, a plea deal or like a yeah. light sentence or something like that. That would be so disappointing. But Matt, I I think you're you're generally correct here. I mean, my my uh, feeling on this has shifted after this took place, and I think that you know it's tipped the skills in favor of some form of justice at minimum being served, which is just such a relief. Uh, mm-hmm. I started to feel a little odd, like maybe it was like a week or two ago when I was talking to my grandma and she said, hey, so what's going on with this Sam Bankman freed guy? Uh, it's pretty pathetic for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's, I was like, yes, yes, grandma. It is. That's a good one. Can we get your grandma on the podcast? <laughs> yeah. And so obviously, you know, you're, you're right, Matt. Like he, he had pierced like t- total mainstream public consciousness. And if you take the most cynical view, like the least sort of generous view toward, you know, politicians and the justice system, what you would say is that he just became too big and too loud of a problem. And, um, you know, being a bit of an optimist, I actually like to believe that it's not quite that bad, that, you know, there is a desire still for justice to be served here. And I hope that that trend continues. Um, The CFTC has also announced a lawsuit over violations or alleged violations of federal commodities laws. So they're getting involved. And the SEC announced charges of defrauding investors in FTX and other securities law violations. So we're probably going to continue to see things pile on here. Yeah. And he's got, you know, there's, there's a number of these that are criminal charges and there's a number of these that are civil charges, right? And, you know, the, the, the civil kind of lawsuits coming against him as well are, I mean, the fines that are going to come from from all of this. So, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the cases here that, or the the outcomes around prison time. Let's just go into this wild world where he doesn't spend his life in prison. He's going to be financially ruined from from this, like beyond ruin. Uh, the the fines are going to be, I think, record breaking of what he's going to personally face in in all of this mm-hmm. um they're gonna be monumental so it's the it really is going to attack from both angles uh, on this uh on this case and it's going to be interesting to see kind of sbf to one side how the rest of the executive team fare uh you know there's yeah. obviously caroline at um 
Alameda, but you've got a lot of the rest of the exec team are coming under scrutiny. And if we're saying that, you know, this wasn't just ignorance, which is an absurd notion that all of this happened through just pure ignorance and uh, negligence. You know, what? I, I think even for the most cynical person here, it's hard to imagine that SBF did all of this on his own, right? You know, right. There, there's, there's right. more to, to come in all of this. Oh, yeah. Does anybody want to explain why that one random director of engineering had $500 million in personal loans from Alameda? I mean, that alone. <laughs> Inflation, Austin. Yeah, <laughs> you got to pay the food bill. Do you know how much cheese costs nowadays? It's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot. I'll tell you that. <clears throat> That is true. Um, now, there there is an interesting twist to this, which has, has been called out uh, a, a few times, which is that SBF was scheduled to testify under oath before the uh, before Congress, uh, the yeah. U.S. Congress, and he was going to testify to the House Financial Services Committee. And that was literally scheduled to happen just a day after his arrest happened. So, I mean, that can not be a coincidence, right? The timing Definitely has to not, be related. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's the significance of this? The arrest prevented that uh, testi- testifying from happening. So he never was called before Congress under oath to testify. And really, if you think about it, this denied an opportunity to the public to hear SBF face questioning under oath, which would have potentially led to further discovery in this huge case that's mounting against him. I... I, again, if you're going to take a really cynical view here, you'd say maybe like some powerful people in D.C. didn't want to hear what he was going to testify about because it would be inconvenient <laughs> for them. Yeah, and, like had him arrested preemptively or something like that. I don't know. I think the other the but, other view you could also look is that it's kind of clever in in the sense of just you know they want to build a, a case, have a bit more time, make sure that this doesn't kind of cause any issues in when they do bring him to trial, things like that. Yeah. So I, no doubt, unquestionable, is that it was deliberate uh, that yeah. it, it prevented him from, from speaking. I guess, yeah, the motives. The conspiracy theory will, theorists will be let loose on this one at least. <laughs> For sure. I mean, remember, he, he just spent, you know, the last several weeks on a media tour where he kind of just appeared to repeatedly incriminate himself. So probably yeah. uh, more of the same would have happened if, if he were testifying. But regardless, I, hey, regardless of, uh, of when and how it happened, I'm just happy that he did get arrested and that we're moving forward with this. It's nice to Agreed. see. Um, separately, one thing worth mentioning is that the White House has refused to answer questions about donations from SBF, and they wouldn't clarify whether they'll return any political donations made during- What, what uh, donations? What donations? Yeah. <laughs> they've oh, already man, they've they... already been siphoned through tornado cash by now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Matt. Oh, you're winning me over, man. Holy crap. <laughs> what better words could be spoken? Uh, so true. Anyway, um, so yeah, Biden uh, and uh, the White House press secretary um, re- refused to comment on that or whether other elected officials should return similar donations. And what's really bizarre to me about this is that she cited being bound by the Hatch Act, but that does not apply to the president. Um, if you're what, interested what is in the, the Hatch what is Act, the Hatch? what is the Hatch Act? Yeah. I'm not familiar with it actually. Um, it's this old FDR Great Depression era law that would have prevented them for basically 
from talking about this donation related I to see. an ongoing case and all of this stuff. Um, so, but it, it doesn't apply to the president. Uh, if you're interested in the Hatch Act, yeah, give it a Google. It is a really interesting one, but it's uh, this is not really a legitimate excuse for the uh, the White House press secretary and the president to address the political donations piece of things. And to give credit where credit is due, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Dick Durbin, Kristen Gillibrand and John Boozman have all returned or donated to charity the contributions that have been made by SBF. I hope oh, that wow. we can. Yeah, I know it's nice. I hope we continue to see that trend um, because to me, it's it's a, a show of uh, high integrity and and good faith operating. Agreed, um, and that's and that's across Democrats and Republicans, which I think is is important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, now. At the, the one other thing I wanted to call out here before we move on is that at the Senate committee hearing, um, Kevin O'Leary did testify, and uh, yeah, yeah, he did, um, and he claimed that Binance has deliberately caused the FTX collapse. He said Binance is quote a massive unregulated monopoly now, and uh, it turns out that Kevin O'Leary was paid like fifteen million dollars to be an FTX spokesperson, so. Um, oh, weird, weird stuff happening there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just, I'm a bit confused. Like, why, why is Kevin O'Leary in, in, in this? <laughs> well, I guess he's been so involved with FTX and he's kind of one of the only people that's been speaking positively about S- FTX and SBF. He's been on a media tour as well. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know why he was brought in, but um I, I do have a couple other quick things that are fun that I want to just blast through here real quick. Let's do um, it. Just, just some quick notes. Okay, one. This is just like, uh, it gets even more bizarre. A- apparently, FTX stored private keys to wallets holding, quote, hundreds of millions of user funds without encryption, according to their court documents. So. <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay, oh, my goodness. Great. Um, okay, next one. FTX used QuickBooks for their accounting. <laughs> Wait, they used accounting software? That's incredible. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, okay, next one. SBF and FTX's inner circle reportedly had a secret group chat, chat ch- group chat on Signal named "quote Wire Fraud." Oh. That's good. Um, excellent. It's about as subtle as their funding rounds. You know what? <laughs> what is happening here? What would oh ever possess God. you to 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 do that? I I mean, why am I trying to find logic in the madness? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hit me with Just another. So okay, last one and probably my favorite. So FTX has this new CEO that's in charge of the liquidation process and everything. This guy, John J. Ray, who was also brought in to handle Enron after the collapse, famously. And he just testified in front of Congress that FTX's theft of customer funds was one of the most unsophisticated cases of fraud that he's ever dealt with. This coming <laughs> from it. the Enron guy. <laughs> I love it. I love it when people do stuff like this, where it's just like, you won't even let them come across as a criminal mastermind. They have yeah. to just be a completely, like, they're, they're an idiot. <laughs> Yes. And the thing is, Matt, when I first read this, I was like, oh, shit, like this is him trying to like play into the narrative that they're, oh, they're just a bunch of stupid kids or something like that. But then he follows it up and he says, quote, this is really old fashioned embezzlement. And then he continues <laughs> it's actually on. John, John, actually, it's retro, I think, is what, what we call it here at FTX. This isn't yeah. old fashioned at all. 
Uh, <laughs> old fashioned embezzlement. That's great. So good. And then he says, quote, this is just taking money from customers and using it for your own purpose. Not sophisticated at all. I love this guy. <laughs> yeah, honestly. I think like this has been the most enjoyable, entertaining bankruptcy <laughs> like <laughs> hearing we've ever seen. Even just like the notes on the initial like documentation. I don't even know that the correct term for this on like the initial like chapter eleven filing, but like it was it was comedy gold in 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 some of that filing. It was enjoyable mm-hmm. to read. And while I haven't read a whole host of chapter eleven filings in in full, I can't imagine that they're gonna be all quite as entertaining. So yeah. <laughs> more more Enron guy, please. Less Sam Bankman Freed. That would be my takeaway <laughs> in all this. <clears throat> that is what we can all look forward to in the upcoming Netflix special. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. You know, someone's gonna get a payday on that. That is Oh for my sure. gosh, it's gonna be amazing. All right. So that is the last of what we have to say about SBF and FTX for the entire remainder of 2022. Up next, we've got some interesting thoughts on inflation numbers and the responses from central banks. This is a really cool deep dive. You're gonna want to stick around for it. I thought I'd take us on a bit of a deep dive, crash course, so to speak, on everyone's favorite topic of 2022, inflation. And I thought as we come up to the end of the year and we're starting to see, we've just had consumer price index numbers come in, both for a few of the different areas inside Europe, including the UK, but also, of course, from the US. And we've seen central banks uh, make some changes here. I thought it'd be really useful to just do a really, really kind of accelerated explanation around inflation, what it means, why we're getting rate hikes, and what we can expect from 2023, and why you should even kind of care about it at all. So this this week, we had the latest set of consumer price index numbers. This is the, <clears throat> the index that tracks the rate of inflation across a whole kind of variety of a basket of at least goods and services. So these were the numbers that came in for November in both the US and the UK. In both cases, headline inflation, annual inflation number is slowing in growth. So over the past 12 months, it is starting to slow down the rate at which inflation is growing. So for the US, we saw 7.1% growth in the past uh, 12 months, which actually was well below the forecast of 7.3%, hence why we've seen a brief rally in the equities market and also as a result uh, in the crypto space, slightly at least. Um, This was down from a 7.7% increase in October. Now, in the UK, much higher inflation numbers were uh, several months behind the US in our uh, fight against inflation. But 10.7% growth. So still in double digits for the past 10 months. However, that is down from the 11.1% increase in October. So as a result of this, and to tackle inflation, the Fed, which of course, the Federal Reserve for the US, raised its interest rate by 50 basis points, 0.5%. That's significant because it follows four successive increases of 75 basis points which is a reduction in the uh, increase in their baseline interest rate. This kind of brings the um, the Fed's 
bank rate up to a range of between 4.25 and 4.5%. What's most notable for markets, right, is the Fed has said they're going to continue to increase interest rates into 2023. They're going to peak, at least most analysts feel, and I think Jay Powell has been kind of hinting towards this, just above 5%. So we're not too far off that. But it's still a level that hasn't been seen since the pretty severe economic downturn that that came to place in the US in 2007. Back on my home soil, Bank of England also raised their rate by 50 basis points today, again, down from the previous 75%, uh, sorry, 0.75%, 75 basis points increase that uh, was in the previous rate increase. And this brings the bank rate to a 14-year high of 3.5%. You'll notice that interest rates uh, on the Bank of England are still at least an entire basis point, um, an entire percentage point lower than that in the US. The Bank of England does plan to raise rates further, and I think most analysts believe this will peak at around the 4.25, potentially in a more kind of bearish view, 4.5%. Um, so we got pretty much a whole additional percentage point to go, whether there's only around 50 basis points yeah. baked in for, for the US. Um, yeah. so I, I think, Wild. you know, yeah, we, we don't know this for sure, but I think considering this, what we're starting to see is a slowdown in the, the, the rate increases. Right. But nevertheless, I mean, at least here on, on US soil, I would say for my lifetime, this is probably the most hawkish the Fed has ever been. And it seems with each meeting, uh, the, <laughs> the, the messaging gets further negative. So more, more pain likely to be ahead before we have some type of let up, right? I mean, what we're talking about here is not a decrease in inflation. We're, we're talking about a decrease in the rate of growth of inflation in the same and way that we're I talking about. I think that's very important. Yeah, that, yeah, that's really important to call. I mean, look, when you go back the past 20 years... Interest rates, like the the bank rate from central banks in like the US and most of Europe, has practically been between a range of zero and mm-hmm. kind of three upper end, three point five percent. Certainly for the past decade, it's been nowhere near that, right? You know, it's it's basically inflation has never been a thing that for certainly anyone that's a millennial or younger has really ever had to think about. Or ever even yeah. felt. This is certainly the first time that's starting to happen. But I, yeah. I do think it's important, right? So, you know, there's all this talk about, in particular, these these two kind of metrics. Well, intertwined with maybe the third piece, which relates to it. You've got the inflation rate, right? And then you've got consumer price index, which relates to inflation rate. And then you've got the interest rate that the central banks are currently increasing. And I think those those two pieces, as I mentioned, like there just hasn't been that kind of discussion around controlling inflation in the way that we are talking about now. So many people still are not that familiar with the mm-hmm. causes of and effects of inflation. So I thought, yeah. I'd like, let me just like touch on some of the basics here. Cause it, it, I think it's really important to to understand because this influences pretty much every aspect of kind of global markets all the way through from like, how is this going to impact like the wider economy through to, you know, low income individuals through to like 
super high net worth individuals. Like inflation in, uh, affects everyone in very different ways, but it affects people. So inflation in its simplest sense, right? And I, I don't want to teach people to suck eggs here a little bit, but it's, you know, it's, it's the rate at which goods and services prices go up. Or the reverse of way of looking at this is it's the rate at which a currency depreciates in value. So it means your dollar, your pound, your euro today will afford you fewer goods and services in the future. Now, this this impacts, as I mentioned, everyone, but it impacts lower income households disproportionately more because as their disposable income is decreased, as their current income affords them less things, they have fewer options to reduce their outgoings. It's been a huge amount of discussion in the US around the earnings of uh, kind of major um, uh, food kind of chains, like grocery stores, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see people that maybe were shopping, especially in the middle classes, or middle income, should I say, shopping at the likes of the Whole Foods, the Trader Joe's, et cetera, et cetera, dropping down and shopping at Walmart, right? Like reducing and Walmart earnings have reflected like a boom in in this. Plus like inflationary prices have, have helped them a little bit. Whereas those slightly more expensive stores have been getting hurt by this. Well, if you're a lower income household and you're already shopping at a like a value-based store, it's tough to go cheaper than that, right? And on top of that, essential goods and services like electricity, for example, gas, food, they're often the first things to rise in price, while interest payments on existing debt, like mortgages, will often rise dramatically as a result of central banks trying to tame inflation. All of this happens while your cash savings are reducing in value. So the TLDR here is high inflation is not good. But I think the important thing is to understand what it takes for inflation to come down. And yeah, I'm going to oversimplify here, but the the headline takeaways here is consumer spending has to slow and more people need to be saving, right? So there's less of an impetus on consumers actually going out and spending. So what this what this uh, has a knock-on effect on is like demand for goods and services, it slows down. Businesses then lack the ability to grow prices because demand has stripped down further. If they were to grow prices because they had high demand, which we've seen a consistent level of growth in over the past kind of decade in particular, that would have perpetuated inflation. What we start to see as businesses don't do that, they can't raise prices. So where do they, and they're getting squeezed on profit margins, wage growth slows, unemployment rises, they're making cuts and with it for everyday individuals disposable income comes down as well. And I know this is an incredibly hope-filled summary that I'm delivering here, but you know, the, the important part of this is that while being in high inflation periods is very painful, it is equally, or in many cases, much worse and more painful to come out of them. You look at any time in history where there's been extreme inflation, which we often define as like hyperinflation, the only kind of period of time that has been like worse than living through the hyperinflation is getting out of the hyperinflation. Very, very painful. And what uh, what we see as a result of trying to drive down inflation is central banks increase 
their interest rates, which is often referred to as the bank rate, right? This is the, the rate at which central banks will charge interest and uh, allow kind of commercial banks, governments to borrow money from them directly, often through bond purchases. Well, when they increase this interest rate, it slows down economic growth. This is because the increase, um, this increases the cost of capital, i.e. borrowing is more expensive for the consumer and for businesses. Consumer, their mortgages go up because banks pass on the price uh, increase to, to consumers with an additional buffer. Businesses, governments, they can't borrow as much because it costs more and it removes capital from the market as a result. This dramatically reduces spending as a result and prices, albeit with a substantial lag in time, should drive down with it. On the other hand, when central banks increase uh, uh, interest rates, it accelerates, no, sorry, when they decrease interest rates, it accelerates economic growth, right? And we saw that through the pandemic. The Pretty much every central bank's uh, bank rate was at like an all-time low, next to 0%, and in many cases, actually 0%, where it was effectively free to borrow cash. And this is because capitals capital becomes cheaper, businesses can invest in growth, they create new jobs, wage growth, which increases disposable income, leads to greater spending, but then that can also lead to higher inflation. So the fight that central banks have is to reduce inflation without slowing economic growth too much. This is why we have a target of 2% inflation. I think this is something that like confused a lot of people. Confused me for a long time. It's like, okay, like the target rate of inflation isn't actually 0%, it's 2%. It, it's largely just to create a buffer because the only thing worse than inflation is deflation. If you get to a point where the uh, you step into a period of deflation, People will stop spending on the assumption that goods will actually get cheaper in the future, which can create very bad cycles. It can get very bad in particular because this lack of spending cripples businesses, leads to lower wages, huge increases on a factor of from what you see in high inflationary environments of unemployment. And all of this is happening while the price of your assets, like your home, is depreciating in value, yet the debt attached to them remains fixed. So then you start to see as unemployment takes hold, consumer spending reduces further. And in fact, uh, there's been many studies. I actually had a little look at this study that came out of Sweden that within the first year of unemployment, consumption expenditures drop on average by 26.3%, which is a lot. That's a lot for consumption to come down once someone uh, is, is unemployed. And when you see mass unemployment, this starts to create a what many economists would call a doom spiral, or as we like to say in crypto, a death spiral. It just perpetuates this problem further. So you can see why this is a difficult balance for central banks to, to strike. And they're also fighting with fiscal policy, which comes from governments, which we definitely don't have time to dive into. But during high inflation... I think like this is this is kind of the, the thing to understand, right? During high inflation, consumers' income affords them less. But during slow economic growth, consumers' ability to generate income worsens. So both are not good situations for consumers. And this is why a lot of the the talk is about whether we're gonna have a quote unquote like hard landing or a soft landing 
after tackling inflation. Basically, how bad will the economy be once inflation does come down? And it will come down at some point. I'm just going to take a little breath. Like, what what does this all mean for 2023? Right? So the UK and the Euro- and Europe in general, it's worth calling out, as we, we've kind of mentioned, they have a lot more to deal with when it comes to tackling inflation than the US. The US is several steps ahead. It could definitely get worse for the US if um, central banks and governments don't deal with this properly, but they are in a much better position for a number of reasons. I think it's also pointing out that in Europe, inflation numbers are much, much higher. So in the US, as I mentioned, November's number, 7.1%. In the UK, 10.1%. Germany, 10%. The European Union as a whole, and albeit this is October's number, but I can't imagine it's going to break much further than this, is 11.5%. The majority of Europe is in double-digit inflation. That is borderline unprecedented. And the, the big factor here is the energy crisis. Europe has an energy crisis, which the US doesn't. It's putting much more strain on the economy. It's driving up kind of headline inflation due to primarily increased household energy bills. You've also got supply chain issues and like overall just disruption, of course, from the chaos of Russia's invasion war on Ukraine. I think in in the UK in particular, it's probably in the worst situation of any of the G7 countries for sure, arguably some of the worst of any like Western quote unquote rich nation because you know, we also have Brexit as a major headwind. Like one very small piece in this is like, you know, increase in import costs that impact inflation again. Plus the chaos that we saw in September of this year during Liz Truss's infamously brief tenure as prime minister, where along with Quasi uh, Kwartang, her partner in crime and the chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, she managed to bring the pound sterling to a historic low against the dollar, caused shockwaves through the bond market, prompted us to produce a podcast episode titled the pound of the <laughs> shitcoin uh you know and i think you know it's it, it's it's a wild time here because right now i i don't think i've actually lived through a time in the in my lifetime where there has been this much disruption in the general infrastructure of the country so we're actually right now facing some of the largest scales of strike action from a whole host of public sector, some private sector workers. So border police, um, huge swathes of them have gone on strike. Royal Mail, which is now a private company, uh, but is the by far and away leading like postal service. This is like US, like US Post just going on strike. Like we, I, I just got my first piece of mail that came through, um, which was a parking fine today right oh that was God. that was that was dated as the 17th of november it's the 15th of december today and it doubled in price if i didn't pay it in 14 days pour that salt in the wound that was lovely uh so <laughs> uh so, so there's your inflation matt <laughs> <laughs> right and, and and it's and it's what healthcare. this is probably the biggest one right so next week 100,000 nurses will stage a walkout across England and Wales. And it's the first time in the history of the, and I cannot remember the exact name of the uh, the nurses union, uh, forgive me, but it's the first time in their history that they have ever striked. And 
uh, rail workers, pretty much like the trains are consistently not operating. Um, and, and many, many more. And this is for, you know, largely wage increases that are going to kind of curb the effects of inflation. Uh, for, for many of those, it's a roughly like 17 to 19% increase being, um, being asked for. And, you know, th- this often happens during high inflation periods because workers' wages don't keep pace with the price of goods and services. So naturally, their cash is getting them less, which means they're getting paid less is, is the reality of this. Even if you don't necessarily think about it, like, you know, you're getting 2,000 pounds a month and you go, well, I'm still getting 2,000 pounds. Well, if that 2,000 pounds buys you 75% of what it did previously, you know, it, you're effectively getting 1,500 uh, a month. So, and, and that is the reality. The problem is in the UK, and I'm not going to go on my soapbox too much here, but you know the years of austerity that led up to this period have had a compounding effect that's now difficult to see how any of this will end well for anyone. So there has been a consistent defunding of the public sector and the primary modes of like infrastructure in the UK over the past 20 plus years now. And it's come to a fore where the government is in a standoff with all of these trade unions and hoping, they're hoping that public sentiment will turn against them, which certainly for healthcare after COVID is not going to happen in the short term. They're not willing to budge, but wages and conditions and staffing are are, are in such a poor condition that's on top of inflation as well. So it's getting kind of worse and worse here. And I think in the US it's a slightly different story. Don't get me wrong. There is maximum pain in the US right now still. And it's not to say there isn't pain there. I think that it's important to call out the effects that inflation is having in the US versus Europe and how, they dif- how they're different and how we may see different actions being taken by governments and by central banks as a result. I think in the US, it's more of a question of whether the US can get out of a high inflation period without a recession. Whereas in Europe, particularly in the UK, the question is, how long will that recession last? We're talking about here a potential for 18-month consistent recession, minimum. Yeah, you know, that is that is a lot. So I think when we think about 2023, I expect it to involve a slowdown in these rate hikes, but we are going to see big increases in unemployment. I think it's going to be significant pain, which we have yet to see in the housing market, primarily because borrowing costs have been so high. So the kind of housing market has kind of been a bit frozen. Like people need to sell their house to, to get capital here, but there just hasn't been enough buyers because borrowing costs have been so high. Once that activity starts, I think we're going to see a big kind of uh, decrease in uh, housing prices. But... I do believe we'll see a real slowdown in inflation growth. Will we get down to that 2% inflation target? Almost certainly not. Do we? Could we potentially get down to that 4 to 5% mark? I think that seems reasonable, speculating at this point, but I think that seems reasonable. For crypto, this likely means a lot of sideways action. Those predicting a bull run breaking out, in my opinion, have their optimism misplaced. Um, at the same time, barring some kind of major collapse of, say, Binance, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see much dramatic downward movement. So 
I think it's going to be a strange year next year, actually. I think it's going to be a lot of pain in the jobs market. I think for everyday people, it's going to feel worse, actually, than inflation did. I think on an investor mm-hmm. level, it's going to feel better. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's going to be a strange year. It's going to be a strange year. Yeah, I'm with you. It's wild. But, yeah. I, I thought I would end on a light note. I thought I would end on a light <laughs> note, Austin, you know. <laughs> You've, I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> um 2022 everybody that's a yep. wrap <laughs> <laughs> well everyone on that note we will see you back in 2023 for a slowdown in inflation and maximum pain and for everything else austin as always another year down it's been an absolute pleasure covering what has been possibly the most insane year that i think we've covered crypto since 2017 on the podcast without a doubt and i am hoping that next year is thoroughly boring that's what i hope (laughs) that is hey matt it's likewise man it's been an absolute pleasure and uh yeah this year hey it's been a lot of things uh and it's certainly been entertaining (laughs) yes Uh, among those things so uh what a wild one and yes uh Hopefully next year is a little bit more sane and and stable and we can have some more positive news for y'all. But whatever that news is, we will continue to banter about it (laughs) right here on the Decrypting Crypto podcast. Absolutely. And a big thank you to everyone that's kind of stuck with us. Some of you maybe joined in for the first time this year. Um, Some of you have been listening for several years now. We will continue to keep our coverage. We'll bring some nice, interesting interviews coming into the new year. And uh, yeah, enjoy any holidays that you may or may not be celebrating. Hopefully, at a bare minimum, you'll be getting some time out. And we'll see you all in the new year. See you then, Austin. See you, Matt. The contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.